0: Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Indigenous peoples have been on the front lines protecting the planet from environmental devastation. They are also part of frontline communities severely impacted by exploitation of Mother Earth and have asked that we have another relationship with nature. And They have made significant gains. In September of 2021, the Indigenous Environmental Network and Oil Change International released a report entitled Indigenous Resistance Against Carbon. The report analyzes the impact Indigenous resistance to fossil fuel projects in the United States and Canada has had on greenhouse gas emissions over the last 10 years. According to the report, Indigenous resistance has stopped or delayed greenhouse gas pollution equivalent to at least 25% of annual U.S. and Canadian emissions. Indeed, Indigenous peoples have long led the fight to protect Mother Earth, and many say the only way forward is to center Indigenous knowledge and keep fossil fuels in the ground. Not only have Indigenous Peoples directly confronted climate change head on, most often putting their lives on the line, they, along with the Global Justice Ecology Project and other grassroots environmental campaigners from frontline communities, have for decades been raising alarms about false climate solutions. They've pointed out that these false climate solutions not only provide superficial and cosmetic changes to what are urgent and systemic problems, but a lot more. Indigenous and other environmental campaigners continue to speak out against these false solutions. This, as we are facing what is increasingly referred to as a climate catastrophe a coalition of grassroots indigenous and environmental movements, have released a new third edition of a report entitled Hoodwinked in the Hothouse, Resist False Solutions to Climate Change. It is an easy to read, concise yet comprehensive report of the false corporate promises, which its authors say lead us down risky pathways, poised to waste billions of public dollars on a host of corporate schemes and market-based mechanisms. Hoodwinked in the Hothouse provides a robust framework for understanding the depth of real solutions and how they could be determined, rooted in pro-Indigenous, pro-environment and anti-capitalist thought. Previous editions of Hoodwinked in the Hothouse played a major role in raising awareness across climate movements around the world, both helping frontline organizers in their campaigns against destructive energy proposal and shifting policy positions of large non-governmental organizations. Today on Sojourner Truth, we have permission to bring you part one of our two-part Hoodwig in the Hothouse series featuring an international panel of climate justice organizers and frontline community leaders. The speakers include Ariel Chakwe Durange, Executive Director of Indigenous Climate Action, Jackie Patterson of the Chisholm Legacy Project, Monica Deoro of Micronesia Climate Justice Alliance, and Tom Goldtooth, executive director of the Indigenous Environmental Network. They discuss the new Hoodwinked in the Hothouse report, as well as the multi-billion dollar climate investments being promoted by fossil fuel industries and other disaster capitalists.
1: For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onestead. Russia is accusing Ukraine of attempting to assassinate President Vladimir Putin with two drones that attacked the Kremlin overnight. The Kremlin calls it a terrorist act and said Russian military and security forces disabled the drones before they could strike. There were no immediate comments from Ukrainian authorities. The UK's Guardian is reporting a former official to Ukraine's president dismissed the claims as lies. An image on social media shows smoke billowing from the Kremlin The Kremlin says Putin was unharmed in carrying on his regular duties. Meanwhile, at least two people were killed in Ukraine from Russian missile strikes in Kherson. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky is in Finland to meet with prime ministers of four Nordic nations as part of his effort to secure greater firepower for Ukraine's armed defenses. Sudan's warring military factions have agreed to extend a seven-day truce, but fighting continues on the ground. Jans Larky is a spokesperson for the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs.
2: We need the guns to fall silent for two reasons. First of all, because we need civilians protected, and clearly they are not. Uh, we see a lot of civilians being killed in, in the hundreds. Secondly, we need that safety in order for us to, uh, for humanitarian organizations, to safely get to those people in need, or the other way around, safely for people to move to places where they
1: can access
2: uh, aid.
1: The civil war has upended life in Sudan and killed more than 550 people. Nearly 5,000 have been wounded. Palestinian health officials say at least one person was killed and five wounded in an Israeli airstrike in the Gaza Strip. That strike came during hours of fighting between Israel and Palestinian militants following the death of a Palestinian political prisoner who was on hunger strike. A ceasefire has since been reached and is holding. The in-custody death has shined a spotlight on Israel's Practice of administrative detention—that's jailing people without charge. Rami Al-Magari reports from Gaza.
3: khadr Adnan died in Israeli custody after a nearly three-month-long hunger strike. Adnan is a senior member of the Islamic Jihad group in the West Bank. Israeli authorities has placed him under administrative detention without specific charges several times over the past two decades. Hamas claimed responsibility for a barrage of rocket fire into nearby Israeli towns. Ismail Radwan is a senior leader of Hamas in Gaza. He said Israel provoked the latest outbreak of of violence.
4: They must stop attacking our prisoners and the Al-Aqsa Mosque.
3: According to the Palestinian Center for Human Rights in Gaza, there are currently 700 Palestinian prisoners including sex children Currently under administrative detention without charges. For Pacifica Radio, I am Rami Almigari in Gaza.
1: In the U.S., the Federal Reserve meets today and is expected to raise interest rates for a tenth time to bring down inflation. The move has been criticized as a path towards recession and in part at fault for recent bank failures. Turmoil in the banking sector and political battles over the nation's borrowing limit could further weaken the economy if banks restrict lending and financial markets could tumble on fears of a default of the nation's debt. House Democrats are planning a move to allow consideration of a debt ceiling hike, according to Democratic House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries. A memo to party members says ranking member Jim McGovern has filed a special rule that would allow for floor consideration of a bipartisan measure to hike the debt ceiling and avoid a default. It comes as Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and President Joe Biden are at an impasse. Republicans have demanded spending cuts in exchange for raising the debt ceiling, which the President is rejecting. Treasury Secretary this week warned the U.S. faces a default by June 1st if the nation's borrowing power isn't lifted. Ethics in the Supreme Court was a topic of a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing Tuesday. Christopher Martinez reports.
2: Democrat Dick Durbin of Illinois chairs the committee.
5: The chi-
6: highest court in the land should not have the lowest ethical standards.
2: He described one justice meaning Clarence Thomas accepting luxury trips and real estate worth hundreds of thousands of dollars from a billionaire with interests before the court.
6: It falls short of ethical standards we expect of any public servant in America, and yet the Supreme Court won't even acknowledge it's a problem.
2: Durbin had invited Chief Justice John Roberts to attend the hearing, but Roberts declined. That displeased Democrat Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island.
4: Justices Reed the Ethics rules in unique and eccentric ways. And when they're caught out of bounds, they refuse to allow any investigation of the facts. This is not about making the court better. This is about destroying a conservative court. It will not work.
2: Lindsey Graham of South Carolina is the ranking Republican on the committee. He says there is a concentrated effort by the left to delegitimize the Roberts court. He may be right about it not working in the sense that Republicans hold enough votes to block the various Democratic bills proposed to create Supreme Court ethics standards. Reporting for Pacifica Radio News KPFA, I'm Christopher Martinez.
1: I'm Christina Onestad reporting for Pacifica Radio. We kick off part one of the special Hoodwinked in the Hothouse
0: Resist False Solutions to Climate Change, bringing you voices from an international panel of climate justice organizers and frontline community leaders. They discuss the new Hoodwinked in the Hothouse report, an easy-to-read, concise, yet comprehensive report of the false corporate promises being promoted by multinational organizations and corporations. They also discuss strategies for real solutions to climate change rooted in pro-Indigenous, pro-environment, and anti-capitalist thought. Panelists include Chekwe Durange, Executive Director of Indigenous Climate Action, Jackie Patterson of the Chisholm Legacy Project, and Monieka de Oro of Micronesia Climate Justice Alliance and Tom Goldtooth, Executive Director of the Indigenous Environmental Network. Let's hear from them now.
5: Thank you for the invitation, uh, not only for myself, but uh, for the other speakers on this panel. Um, I was asked to do some grounding. I, I said I prefer not to say a prayer uh, in in my language, uh, but to give uh, some words to, uh, to all the participants uh, who are taking part in, in this panel, but also who are listening. Yate'e um, uh, is the greetings in my mom's Dene language. Yate'e greetings and Halmetakia P on my Dakota side. Um, and we always greet people in that way, uh, we're told, uh, as far as when we come together as people is that we come together as relations, as relatives. We are all part of the two-legged, uh, human people and, uh, part of the five-finger clan. Um, how Me P once again, all my relations, uh, uh, from the uh, goodness of my heart, I, I shake all of your hands. Um, and in this presentation of talking about uh, default solutions of climate change, Uh, From our Indigenous uh, perspective in many of the spiritual leaders that uh, I personally have worked with and our staff, our our members, uh, all come from community, we are a grassroots uh, Indigenous environmental network and woven into that network our families, our people who have strong convictions on our traditional beliefs, our original instructions. And we've been told years ago that we have to start sharing these teachings. And where it became very evident is in this discussion of Mother Earth, Father Sky, and climate change. So if people can just kind of think about these words of the question of how do you walk on that sacredness of the the female creative principle of mother earth? How do you walk on mother earth? When you breathe the air of life, when you drink the water of life, when you touch our brothers and sisters of the trees of the forest nation, when you walk through the grasslands, when you go into the mountain regions or where there are glaciers and you taste the melting waters, or you go out into the ecosystem and you meet our four-legged brothers and sisters, or the bird nation, the insects, the ones that are in the ground, the fish, What is that relationship that you have with nature? What is that relationship that you've been instructed to believe in since you were born into this world? Many of our people and our families and our tribal and our indigenous communities are taught about that relationship when we are brought into this world in that release of the water of life from our mothers to that first breath that we take in that relationship, a sacred relationship, sacred relationship with grandmother earth, with mother earth, with our father sky. And this is what guides us. This is what guides us as many of our indigenous peoples. So that's why in this uh, presentation we ask that there be a grounding of understanding of how we walk on Mother Earth. Thank
4: you. Many thanks for that beautiful grounding. I will now uh, proceed to introduce the the, the, the event uh, Hoodwinked in the Hothouse, examining false corporate schemes being advanced through the Paris Agreement. And we must add, in the NYC Climate Week events that are happening at the moment. From net zero emissions and carbon capture to nature-based solutions and geoengineering, a number of neoliberal and should we say the the continuously colonial policy agendas and unproven corporate techno fixes continue to subsidize the expansion of fossil fuel industries while further impacting communities on the front lines of climate chaos. In response to the NYC Climate Week and as we head into the UN Climate Conference COP26, where the implementation of the Paris Agreement will be negotiated. Climate justice advocacy groups and social movements are faced with overcoming a complex array of these false schemes in order to force institutions towards a decolonizing, post-capitalist, anti-patriarchal, just transition framework that could seriously tackle the roots of the crisis. A framework that is rooted on indigenous and regenerative principles of environmental justice. This event would not be possible without the amazing coordination that led to the production of the Hoodwinked in the Hothouse report, a large uh, or, a coalition of organizations that are deeply involved uh, with grassroots climate justice movements throughout the world, whose work is indispensable in centering the key issue areas in today's climate struggles. Biofield Watch, Energy Justice Network, ETC Group, Global Alliance for Incinerator Alternatives, Indigenous Climate Action, Indigenous Environmental Network. Just Transition Alliance, La Via Campesina, Movement Generation, Mount Diablo Rising Tide, Mutual Aid Disaster Relief, North American Mega Dam Resistance Alliance, Nuclear Information and Resource Service, Rising Tide North America, and Shaping Change Collaborative. Now, I'd like to move us to to welcome our panelists to this uh, this event. Ariel Duranger from Indigenous Climate Action, Jackie Batterson from Chisholm Legacy Project, Monique de Oro from Micronesia Climate Justice Alliance, of course, Tom Galtuth from Indigenous Environmental Network and our host, Ananda Lee Tan from Just Transition Alliance. Following this introduction, I will cede the mic to Ananda who will provide some context for this panel and guiding questions that will be followed by contributions from our panelists. We will then finish with a segment of questions and answers which will be based on a selection of questions submitted by the audience in written form across the different platforms. We have other organizations to thank. We cannot mention all of them here. This event has been possible thanks to the support of the team of the New School at the Environmental Policy and Sustainability Management Program, the Indigenous Resurgence Decolonization and Sustainability Initiative of the Tishman Environment and Design Center, uh, Amazon Watch, in addition to the organizations who were centerpiece to this initiative. Uh, such as uh, the Indigenous Environmental Network, the Just Transition Alliance, Global Justice Ecology Project, and Biofuel Watch. With that, I'd like to pass the floor to Ananda. Thanks, Ananda.
6: Thanks, Leo, <clears throat> and thanks, Tom, and thanks everyone who's been able to join this uh, webinar. It's uh, truly an honor uh, for me to be uh, the moderator on a panel of uh, not only are uh, such uh, amazing, inspiring organizers and movement leaders, but also people I consider family—people who are uh, my people, who uh, we've been working together for many years now. Mentors, peers, uh, young leadership that is coming up, and uh, I'll tell, I'll introduce them a bit more in detail. But I'll start off with uh, some of the context that I agreed to provide uh, in the lead into this conversation and and this moment, and I'll ask our panelists to reflect on this later. Is uh, is really why you know why should we be concerned? You know what's what's really happening? How are we being hoodwinked in the hothouse? Um, just to note that uh, this is a third edition of Hoodwinked. Uh, it's been a, it was a collaboration for the first two uh, uh, editions. Uh, the last edition uh, that uh, I know at least Tom and I worked on, and possibly a number of you uh, worked on, and many others on this call was uh, produced in the lead up to the Copenhagen. Uh, climate conference in 2009. Um, And at that time, it was very important because uh, in many countries, uh, starting with the US, the the UN's Kyoto Protocol had started driving uh, domestic legislation towards carbon market mechanisms. The idea that we could, through pricing, pollution, and uh, creating opportunities for the world's largest polluters to then come up with ways in which to reduce greenhouse gas emissions through market-based uh, mechanisms and uh, uh, technology investments that we could address the climate crises. Uh, that we started to really actively coordinate and um, a response, you know, a, a popular education response to really inquiring why these uh, these technocratic neoliberal policy options were really problematic. And it has a longer history that I'll ask uh, uh, our brother Tom to reflect on later, but it really goes back to the inception of the U.N. Uh, Framework Convention on Climate Change in, in the first place, of how such an assembly, of the League of Nations, you know, uh, for many of us in this day and age, starting, are starting to recognize that it re- remains an incomplete uh, assembly because it, it actually does not include the oldest living nations. You know, of this earth, all the indigenous communities that, that live around the earth and that can really provide us guidance in this moment of ecological crises are not at the table as full participants. How, how can the League of Nations or the UN itself be, uh, take on the responsibility to provide this global strategy? Uh, it was, uh, needs to be called into question. But underneath that, uh, what has been advanced, uh, starting with the Kyoto Protocol, which was really the first world's first carbon market mechanism and if for, for some of you veterans, you may remember that Al Gore only, uh, the U.S. delegation only agreed to uh, signing Kyoto Call after it centered a carbon market mechanism, the clean development mechanism, which then for many years afterwards uh, served to subsidize massive problematic polluting industries and in frontline communities around the world with landfill, gas and incinerator projects in places like India and uh, Brazil, to uh, landfill, you know, uh, displacement of workers, to the displacement of Indigenous peoples from their lands, to carbon, forest carbon offsets regimes, to a whole host of other frontline community impacts. This this clean development mechanism really set us up to actually move in the wrong direction. You know, ended up being the, probably the world's largest, what we call these days, perverse subsidies, policy subsidies for those destroying the earth. Uh, In that context, and since then, there's been a a whole host of other institutions in in the US, namely the California Global Warming Solutions Act, which produced the California carbon trading mechanism and various other uh, voluntary uh, trading mechanisms, um, uh, the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative on the East Coast of the United States, and a whole host of other carbon market mechanisms around the world that really, uh, in many of our views, subsidize the polluters to actually add more burden on primarily frontline communities, primarily Indigenous, Black, Brown, migrant, and poor communities who are already suffering the first and most, the worst impacts of climate change. Those on the front lines of the fires, the droughts, the storms, the floods, but also on the front lines of the toxic pollution burdens, of the police and prison industrial complex violence uh, that maintain the hegemony of these corporate uh, polluters. And, And a whole other series of systemic uh, systems of violence that have oppressed primarily indigenous and people of color and poor communities around the world. So in that context, uh, it's, uh, it's more germane than ever that we continue fighting this agenda, this corporate agenda to hijack uh, harm, to, to opportunistically uh, try to profiteer off the suffering of millions around the world and, and further entrench the systemic racism, the systemic patriarchy, the systemic violence that's levied at uh, the communities that we organize in. And so in that context, uh, what today we're hoping to do is really uh, give you a sort of a more detailed examination of how that, that agenda has prevailed, has continued from the Paris Agreement to the current day negotiations and how through the implementation of the Paris Agreement in the uh, at the upcoming, or the negotiations about the implementation of the agreement that are going to take place in Scotland, uh, in Glasgow at COP26, how some of those threads have actually you know, uh, threatened to take us in the direction we cannot afford to go. In this time of Anthropocene, in this time of recognizing we, have, we humanity, has created the largest uh, ecological crises, uh, the sixth great extinction, some are calling it, that, that there are some you know, amongst us who actually shoulder the major burden of responsibility for co- driving this crisis. Those that are making billion billions of dollars at the expense of others, as we've seen through this pandemic, but also those who are have you know still continue to have the most influence in government. Those who are driving the Biden administration to now look at uh, options like uh, carbon capture and sequestration and further entrench nuclear power and waste uh, at the cost of people's lives. Uh, those uh, institutions are now at the table and in this moment where in the lead up to uh, the Glasgow Climate Conference where there's a a real serious concern about the equity and even participation of our comrades from the Global South who do not have access to vaccination programs because of the inequity of the pharmaceutical complexes have not and and patenting and all kinds of other restrictions uh, have not had had access to immunization programs that would allow their, their social movements, their delegates the the people that should be attending, the people who are also on the front lines of this crisis, uh, uh, have have relegated them to a back seat. Um, you know, even if they were to participate by Zoom, you know, realizing the the fact that those who are destroying the planet and those who are profiting most from it um, are going to have the you know the front and center uh, position in in deciding what the global compact uh, is going to do in the coming years. This is this is something that we need needs to requires not only a deep systemic challenge or a challenge of the deep systemic inequities but really a clear understanding across our movements across all the environmental groups that are advocating and organizing for climate change that are trying to find new streams of funding and trying to create uh, philanthropic support for these movements of folks who are working on policy for folks who are fighting uh climate change and building the resilience of their communities on the ground, it requires a coordinated effort and a shared understanding of how we navigate this problem, how we rip, tear these policy tables away from some of these neoliberal policy pathways and agendas and actually move towards the solutions we
0: need. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We're going to take a quick station break. When we return, we'll continue with part one of this special, Hoodwinked in the Hothouse, Resist False Solutions to Climate Change. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Come back to Sojourner Truth, and you can check us out on our website on sotrueradio.org. If you're a member of Facebook, you can look for us there and like us. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Our handle is at sotrueradio. We're also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. You can go to the search bar and type in Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott to find us. And today we'd like to give a shout out to to our SoundCloud uh, listeners in Indigenous lands in the Americas, Indigenous lands in the Americas, and internationally, we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Spain. Now we return to our special, Hoodwinked in the Hothouse, Resist False Solutions to Climate Change. During the second half of our program, you will hear more from an international panel of climate justice organizers and frontline community organizers. They include Chakwe Durange, Executive Director of Indigenous Climate Action, Jackie Patterson of the Chisholm Legacy Project, Monica de oro of Micronesia Climate Justice Alliance and Tom Goldtooth executive director of the Indigenous Environmental Network let's hear from them now
6: it's a pleasure to have uh uh Jackie Ariel Monyeka and Tom here i i'll start with tom because uh you know in our in my culture acknowledging our elders and those who have provided us mentorship is key and tom is someone i've had um, i've had you know there's very few people i i kind of uh openly call and mentor, but Tom is someone I've learned from over the years, over the decades, his wisdom, his foresight, but also his persistence at principle practice. Tom is someone who's always reminded me that we need to be inclusive of everyone, especially those voices who are not represented. And, And as a veteran environmental justice organizer, pointed us to those principles of really centering the voices of those first and most impacted, and next, ensuring that nobody is uh excluded Um, in early days of forming the climate justice alliance or at other environmental justice initiatives Tom has always raised the fact that we shouldn't uh, forget our poor white brothers and sisters in Appalachia or those uh, working class communities just because they're white communities we should make sure to an extra effort to sometimes include them when we have our EJ gatherings or making sure that we have balance uh, that community not not just the NGOs with uh, privilege, but also those without paid staff uh, are included. This is something that, for me, has uh, provided really important guidance. So, uh, uh, Tom, thank you for joining us, and I, will, uh, I wondered if you would share some opening reflections on the relevance of uh, hoodwinked and, and this examination of corporate false solutions today.
5: Sure, thank you, Ananda. Um, you, you, you did a, a really good uh, introduction on Hoodwink. Uh, and as you were talking, I was uh, thinking about the 26 years that have gone by since the United Nations uh, Earth Summit back in 1992 that it adopted uh, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change as a process for the world governments to come together to address uh, climate change. And uh, so here we are, uh, a number of us uh, are making plans on on the road to to Glasgow, Scotland for the um, 26th uh, Conference of the Parties, Conference of the Parties meaning the the nation states, the governments who are party to this uh, uh, UN uh, framework convention on climate change. It's been a long road. I got involved in 1998, coming out of a a native-based summit uh, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and got mandates from there, from traditional people, spiritual leaders, women's societies, youth, and some of our tribal governments uh, programs that were concerned about climate change. And we sent a a document, we prepared a document that uh, is our mandate uh, and has been uh, uh, something that we built upon as we started to participate in these climate meetings. And I remember when Orrin Lyons is one of our elders and faith keepers from the Haudenosaunee Confederacy out east of me, uh, he said within their their confederacy, they, they prophesied that the time will come when the trees start dying from the top down. And uh, so they translated that into the change in climate and, and uh, said that we need to get involved as indigenous peoples. So, you know, since that, de- that time, uh, oh, I like to report that there's been a lot of successes and there have been some of that. Uh, but, uh, you know, as far as industrialized countries of the North who have played a lot of power Politics in the negotiations, uh, you know, the, um, the amount of emission reductions, uh, just, it has not ever been met. Uh, the Kyoto Protocol you mentioned that was signed in 1997, that was very moderate. It, it, it was in, in, in a way, once I got familiar with the greenhouse effect and that, it, it, it wasn't even near to where we needed to get. But during the 26 years going to the COP emissions uh, with the from fossil fuels, from the burning of fossil fuels and the mining, the extraction of fossil fuels, it, it continues to rise, uh, especially with the in the industrialized countries that share the, the main responsibility for the increase in atmospheric emissions. Um, and uh, that's why, you know, for us in our movement as Indigenous peoples, we started to come together with the Global South and the Black and, and people of color and, and, and poor communities in, in this country, uh, but also in the Global South around looking at the, the issues around who is responsible for addressing this issue, who has contributed the most and created this uh. Uh, climate debt, you could say, ecosystems debt, also looking at economic justice and and economic debt, that is very critical. So uh, since then, we all have said, I think it's not new to the listening audience, that when we say that the UN meeting has been taken over by the corporations, uh, we realize that it's been more about negotiations of business more than regulation. Uh, so there's a lot of popularity. I'm not going to go in depth uh, with that uh, breakdown of the road to the 2015 Paris Agreement uh, as part of the UN climate uh, meetings. But from uh, I need to say from our indigenous environmental network and standing with the analysis of our brothers and sisters from, from the South. Uh, we say that the, the result of this UN Paris Agreement is that it's, it's a trade agreement, it's nothing more. It's not a climate agreement, it's a trade agreement. It promises to privatize, to commodify and to sell forested lands as carbon offsets providing, uh, proving a financial laundering mechanism for rich developed countries and the corporations, the polluting corporations of the North to launder their carbon pollution on the backs of the global South uh, and in the North on the backs of our indigenous Black and people of color and low-income communities. We know this. But it's surprising that a lot of the general uh, society, the public in the North, Canada, United States, and civil society throughout the world haven't put that together. That's why it was very important for us to come together and to uh, produce the third version of this Hoodwinked in the Hothouse uh, publication with the, with the goal to demystify carbon markets, carbon pricing, uh, geoengineering technologies, and uh, uh, extreme energy developments, such as mega hydro dams, for an example, nuclear energy. uh, And there's a lot of other forms of uh, energy that's being proposed that is not clean, it's not, uh, and it's destructive. So we've seen a dangerous slide Uh, Since uh, our participation, since I've been going into the hallways of these uh, UN climate meetings, uh, it's it's a slide towards a lawless capitalism. I like to say it isn't, but it's where this free market ideology, neoliberalism is privatizing every aspect of our lives and virtually there's no public oversight to this no accountability of their profiteering. That's how serious this issue is and why uh, we found as indigenous peoples that we need to wake up the world. Uh, Somehow the world has lost that relationship to the sacredness of mother earth and father sky. uh, And that we feel that uh, mother earth is not for sale. The sky is not for sale. So part of the politics around climate change that we're seeing here domestically in the United States, including uh, our sisters to have to deal with the same politics in Canada and throughout the world is the politics of desperation. Um, and uh, we see that uh, not only within the, the environmental and climate movements, the non-governmental organizations, but also politicians and the foundations and funders. Uh, And and it's just that uh, in in a lot of this work, you know, we have used the word disaster capitalism uh, tied with the short-sightedness of uh, carbon and techno-fundamentalism that's driving this corporate false promises. And I wanted to just share a couple of these uh, thoughts with you to start out this discussion. And uh, even the flooding of, of big money from uh, philanthrop capitalists such as Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, and uh, Elon Musk, who are pushing fault solutions, especially within geoengineering technologies such as carbon capture and storage and solar radiation management. Uh, so how do we convey this uh, to our young people, to to society, so that they can become aware of what's really happening when we talk about climate policy and how to mitigate and adapt to a change in climate. Um, our concern, for an example, with these uh, uh, funders, they sourced up to, to a tune of $100 million. Some of the major NGOs that are fighting us when we speak the truth on how these false solutions do not cut admissions at the source that we need. So uh, we ask you to download, to get a copy of Hood Weeked and you'll see a whole uh, package of, of, uh, of exposed exposures of this climate investment schemes and it is like Ananda said, it's designed to, to, to reward the profiteers who are the, the very folks that are causing the problem and the pollution. Uh, and I want to say, you know, with the with the related to our, our traditional knowledge is that at least those people those people that have guided me says. Uh, when I explain this whole process of the, the carbon offsets, for an example, carbon markets, cap and trade, carbon tax, I explain it and break it down to a lot of spiritual leaderships, uh, not only in the north, but in the south, and they say, it, it, it's not right. How can we put a price to the air? How can we include the air like carbon and methane and greenhouse gases into uh, a modern market uh, system and treat it as a commodity? Before you trade air, for an example, you gotta determine whose property right it is. So it's a legal system of privatization. Mm -hmm. And uh, for any of our folks that wanna participate in these systems, I asked the question, how do you reconcile participation in these fault solutions that commodify and privatizes Mother Earth and nature? Um, we've started to work on one, one area way back in the early 2000s on reducing emissions from, from deforestation and degradation. It was a carbon offset initiative that still is continuing called RED. Uh, it's where in uh, polluting industry, like, for an example, Chevron or Shell, who pollute in California, they can offset their pollution locally uh, by going carbon neutral, buying carbon credits to protect the trees in the Amazon. Sure, we want to do everything we can to protect the trees of our brothers and sisters, but in these false solutions, using trees as as um, carbon sponges, as scams that really allow the polluters to continue to pollute in the North, creating toxic hotspots. That's wrong. That's wrong. So now we're seeing a rebranding of the organizing that we did with, amongst many different organizations throughout the world to expose like red as being a scam. Uh, they rebranded it. Now it's called nature-based solutions, nature-based solutions. And my other uh, final comment on these is that we have to really be educated on everything that's happening as as, uh, uh, people from the U.S., people from different countries, uh, civil society that still is having a hard time getting into the COP. Uh, That's a big concern as well. Uh, we ha- we're very cautious on Green New Deal governmental initiatives as being part of green economy scams. So these are where we have to be alert. We got to have the capacity to really look through these smoke screens and uh, speak out uh, such again as nature-based solutions or nature, natural climate solutions. And using terms such as regenerative agriculture. Check these out where they're using soil now and the carbon in the soil, but whose money is that? that money comes from the polluters again, as an offset for their pollution so this is where uh, we want to share this information with you. Uh, the hoodwink booklet is very very helpful uh, towards that, and uh, you know and and this whole This whole process that's taken place and this worldview, how the world uses uh, machines to make meaning of life, where Mother Earth is objectified like the objectification of women and treated like a machine made of parts that can be replaced, redesigned, or engineered. That's where we're at. That's really where we're at in this world, where DNA is coded. Uh, to be edited and deleted at what point at the whims of the corporations where our bodies and engines and food is fuel where the world is not seen as a complex uh independent interdependent beautiful and sacred relations yeah. that's why within our culture we say owase. we are all related uh, and that's what I wanted to share with you. I uh, hope this is helpful. The publication is very timely. Uh, the world is being promised that these fault solutions addressing climate change will eradicate poverty and world hunger, empower our women, address environmental justice issues, and provide funding for just transition. And help indigenous peoples obtain land rights and guarantee our right to free, prior, informed and informed consent. This this is not happening. This is a lie. It's a collection of conflicts, contradictions and lies. Uh, Mother Earth is the source of life which needs to be protected, not a resource to be exploited and commodified as natural capital. We only have one Mother Earth, let's protect her. Thank you very much.
7: Um, thank you. um, so thank you so much for having me as a part of this panel discussion today. Because, as you know, false solutions, um, are as Tom so eloquently put, they have really inundated the spaces in which, uh, you know, state or colonial leaders are really trying to drive. Climate solutions, and so I'm really glad that this conversation is finally coming to a forefront that is actually has like momentum built around it. That we're now seeing this really broad sector of intersectional movements from you know you know women's groups to Black uh, liberation groups to the Via Campesinas to the Pacific Islanders to all of the different struggles that have been rooted in justice for our people and justice comes in so many different forms, whether it's like land justice for reparations, whether it's land justice for communities for getting our land back in North America or Turtle Island, whether it's the movements of um, fighting against the deeply, deeply entrenched racial discrimination and racism and white supremacy that exists throughout the Americas. We are at this forefront where the climate justice has intersected with everything. And when we talk about justice, we really need to look at what a climate justice framework is. So we were asked, and it kind of didn't happen, but I'm gonna read the paragraph because I think this is an important context. So this is in the introduction to Hoodwinked in the Hothouse. A climate justice framework does not reduce the climate crisis to a puzzle simply focused on counting carbon. Grassroots, community-led movements around the world look across the economy at the exploitation of land, labor and living systems, at the erosion of seed, soil, story, and spirit, and seek to lip, lift up real solutions around us every day, from Indigenous, indigenous traditional knowledge, food sovereignty, decommodification of land, health care and housing, to abolishing the military industrial complex, seeking to extract the last dredge of fossil fuel from Mother Earth from just transition and energy democracy where democratized, decentralized, detoxified and decarbonized energy powers, powers our lives to transformative justice where we respond to the violence and trauma with compassion and healing, not policing, punishment and prisons. I think that when we talk about that and you read that definition of what a climate justice framework looks like, and again, this is in the introduction to the Hoodwinked in the House report, you start to understand that the solutions that are being put forward by colonial governments, whether in the U.S. or so-called Canada, or in any of the colonial countries, which is basically all of them at this point, let's be real, um, that these systems are not holding those at the values. We heard on the historical context that when we talked about, uh, you know, early agreements for climate, for addressing the climate crisis, in the Kyoto Accord, for example, it reframed. We talked about all of this stuff at the Rio summit in 1992 about the fact that we need to be talking about seeds and soil and people and humanity, and you know coming back into relationship with each other and with the land. And that was distorted and skewed into the, having a conversation that relegated the climate crisis to an economic discussion. And what we're seeing now being driven across the Americas and across the world are false solutions that uphold and support an economy and a system that does little to actually reduce the emissions while safeguarding economic systems, including big corporations and big governments that are in bed with these corporations to continue to railroad communities, marginalized folks, uh, indigenous peoples, black communities, and all of the other folks that have been, you know, disempowered and disenfranchised from these systems from the very beginning. So far, you know, there's a lot of these conversations. And as Tom said, we're seeing this repackaging. We're seeing this this appropriation really of indigenous ideologies that we have been fighting for and advocating for within these structures to push back against these economic structures to say that we need to be listening to nature we've talked about natural law we've talked about our relationships with the with mother earth and those have been again once again appropriated repackaged and recommodified as nature based solutions carbon offsets blue carbon all of these different structures that do nothing but continue to commodify the natural world and allow big polluters to keep polluting and allow the those that are in power to stay in power and do very little to address the justice frameworks that I just spoke about at the beginning. We need to be looking at ways to recenter ourselves, our relationships, um, and separate ourselves from this economic structure and remove it out of the conversation. If we are going to address the climate crisis, we cannot do it from an economic perspective. Um, And one of the things that Indigenous Climate Action has been doing over the last couple of years is we've really been looking at how we can begin to unpack what decolonizing climate policy can look like. And so we recently released a report that looked at Canadian climate policy, and it's called Decolonizing Climate Policy in Canada. And it investigated the shortcomings and problems associated with Canadian climate policy, while at the same time supporting and developing Indigenous-led climate policy. Climate policies by and for Indigenous people that will raise up and empower Indigenous-led solutions. And this is so important because we have to be looking at deconstructing and the undoing of current systems to create space for our own independent processes and plans that are built around this holistic, interconnected, balanced approach that's based on relationship, reciprocity, and respect for each other and the natural world. And so within that context, like within Canada, you know, we're often looked at as this, this, you know, sort of nice country, um, by a lot of folks, but the reality is, is these same solutions that are being driven forward that we hear about by, you know, the big ugly country, the United USA, these are, we're we're doing the same thing here in Canada, except we package it really, really nicely. With Indigenous peoples and the Indigenous peoples within Canada, the government is parading things around like uh, Indigenous protected and conservation areas as a way to broach both truth and reconciliation, by allowing Indigenous peoples to have the the um, the ability to manage conservation zones. But those conservation zones are being underwritten by big corporations, Shell, Exxon, Suncor, Sincor, some of the biggest operators in the tar sands are underwriting these conservation offset programs that they're then going to be using. Once we have developed a mitigation strategy that they're hoping for that can be utilized not just within Canada as a way to offset their emissions, but within the international systems that are being negotiated at the UN level. And so we have to be very careful about when colonial governments give us or hand us a so-called olive branch as marginalized communities, as disenfranchised communities where the systems were never created for us or by us or with us that when they hand these opportunities for us, what is the hidden agenda? We have to constantly be thinking about what is the hidden agenda behind government suddenly just very like, oh, we want you to manage your lands and territories because it benefits them and it creates the optics that they're doing something. But at the end of the day, the colonial governments still determine which areas become conservation offsets. They would never give the conservation offsets to the Wet'suwet'en clans that have been fighting for the protection of their homelands, even though it is a rich, biodiverse region that deserves just as much conservation and protection as other areas that have been listed in this country. But because it has already been, um, you know, titled to a corporation for exploitation, it does not get it. So they're only giving what they feel is going to benefit them the corporations, and the entire system of false solutions to be pushed forward that continues to railroad and marginalize our communities. So we have to move forward and support each other. We have to support each other in this movement for liberation from false solutions and liberation from capitalism, liberation from white supremacy.
0: We're out of time, I'd like to thank the organizers of the webinar, Hoodwinked in the Hot House, for allowing us to share their audio with you. I would also like to thank the Sojourner Truth team, Romero Funes, our assistant producer, and today's audio engineer. If you'd like a copy of today's show, you can contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230. Go online to PacificaRadioArchives.org. Remember to visit our website, SoTrueRadio.org, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at so True Radio. And this is your host, Margaret Prescott. And y'all, please remember to stay safe.